0: Welcome to Season 2 of the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Hello, podcast listeners. Today's episode will be our very last in the calendar year 2018, and we look forward to bringing you brand new episodes and content come 2019. That'll drop sometime in January, a little bit more to be determined, but in the interim, I hope you all have fantastic winter breaks and that you have survived the end of your semesters and the end of your quarters, uh, and that you are able to head into the break with uh, inbox zeros. I know that's something that I always strive for and is always a little bit of a pipe dream. But in any case, I'm looking forward to bringing you today's conversation. We're going to be speaking with a newer professional all about what it's like to be a newer professional, not only in the field of student conduct, but also in the ASCA leadership structure. Today's episode features Christina Parle, Christina currently serves as the Assistant Director for Student Conduct and Community Standards at the University of Kansas, primarily working with student organizations. Christina also serves as the current Director of Membership on the ASCA Board of Directors. She is a newer professional in the field who believes firmly that student affairs professionals serve at the pleasure of our students and that conduct is one of the many ways higher education prepares students for post-college life. Christina identifies as a black, biracial, straight, and cisgender woman. Her identities are incredibly important to her and influence the way she navigates both our work and the world. Christina is an advocate for young professionals to have a place within ASCA and believes we only survive if we groom for the next wave of leadership. Welcome to the podcast, Christina Parle. Christina serves as the Assistant Director for Student Conduct at Community Standards at the University of Kansas, also known as KU. So, rock chalk for all of you folks that are KU fans. Welcome, Christina. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you?
1: Doing pretty well. Thank you for asking.
0: Christina and I are recording this conversation today, uh, two days before U.S. American Thanksgiving. Uh, So forgive us if we have a little bit of holiday break going on in our brains. Um, I think we're all working to button up our offices so we can spend time with the people that we love. Christina and I are going to be talking today about uh, her role on the ASCA Board of Directors. Uh, she serves as the director of membership on the board, which is an elected position, and also what it's like to be a new professional in 2018. But before we get into all of that, per our usual show format, we really love to start with asking our guest how you got here. So Christina, can you just share, us, share with us your journey from wherever you'd like to start to how you landed in your current space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my journey is probably pretty similar to most student affairs professionals. You know, I essentially had a really great undergraduate experience and ended up in higher ed. But I would say specifically for student conduct, I wanted to essentially when I first started college, I was a criminal justice major. And then I picked up a political science major right around my sophomore, junior year. Initially, I had wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to go into law enforcement. That was always my goal. And then I did a ride along and ended up catching shoplifters for three years. Um, so did a ride along with a police officer and landed a job and lost prevention um, and very quickly realized that being a police officer was just not a fit for me. And I feel like a lot of the officers that I interacted with were like, listen, I think you should go on and do other big things. And so I'm like, okay. So then I ended up picking up the political science major um, with the HOPE to go to law school. And then I was in a, like a talk that had been brought to our institution about, um, you know, really needing to follow your path and have a vision and have a passion for what you're doing. Um, and then I was introduced to the world of student affairs. I'm a first generation college student. And so it was, of course, a surprise to me to know that that was a job, although I interacted with those people every day. And so then when I started doing my grad school search, uh, the conduct job just fit perfectly. I was not very aware of the conduct field as an undergrad. And so um, definitely opened up my eyes as I journeyed to Penn State to work as a graduate assistant there. And so I um, have always found my love in student conduct, but also have a love for sorority and fraternity life. And so my current role allows me to kind of join those two is on the student organization liaison for conduct.
0: So, yeah. That's amazing. I uh, I didn't know that you had started your journey as a police officer, kind of uh, aspirational goal. So can you tell me a little yeah. bit about that transition in terms of thinking police work is for me, and then how you found the core of police work uh, in conduct in terms of how you wanted to kind of converge those passion areas?
1: Yeah, so it's it's interesting that I always wanted to be a police officer because I was somewhat of a rebellious type as a um, <laughs> young teen, um, and so I don't know. I think I think accountability has always been super important to me. Even when I wasn't, even when there were times when I wasn't holding myself accountable, I think that was a big thing that my mother instilled into me was accountability. And so I think that's always where the draw for um, you know police or conduct type work has been. And then I think there's this level of supporting people who are in potentially crisis or you know aren't developed enough to be able to make good healthy responsible decisions all of those kinds of things. So when I um first got into criminal justice you know, essentially the the thing that the uh, professor asked us to do, she said, either do a police ride along or do uh, like shadowing of a prosecutor in the courts or something of that nature. And so I did the ride along and I was like, this is awesome. Um, And then ended up in loss prevention. And I really think what I started to learn about police work was that it was, it was A, it was z, and it was everything in between, right? Like it wasn't what I thought it was. There's a lot of like Um, tedious type work or working with the community in a way that I wasn't super interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was much more interested in, in doing intentional, getting to know people, being a part of a community type work. And so I think that's really what I found in working in student conduct was the opportunity to have really intentional conversations with students about their behaviors and how do we move forward. And I think we all know, like, our work, it doesn't look like that every day. And there's a lot of people that walk away with no impact from our conversations just because of where they're at developmentally. Um, But I think the few and the many that we do get to reach, that's really um, heartening for sure.
0: And how would you define your current philosophy about how you approach the work?
1: There's a couple things. I, I have two philosophy, philosophies. My first philosophy is I serve at the pleasure of the students because without without students we wouldn't have work. Um, and I think a lot of time in student affairs, folks can talk about the bad in students and can talk about. Uh, The frustrating parts of students that I think we forget sometimes that if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have jobs. And so that's my first philosophy. And my second philosophy, pretty specifically to student conduct, is um, to prepare them for post-college life. Uh, I think in my own experience and then in the experience that I see in students that I work with, is that in a lot of ways, we do not prepare them for post-college life, and particularly sometimes the folks who raise them or influence them in a family way are not preparing them for post-college life. And I think conduct is a really good opportunity to do that, Um, because as I talk to most students, uh, accountability is a life skill um and so it's something that you'll have to do literally for the rest of your life whether it's with yourself uh, with family members if you choose to have children um with supervisees it's only something that's that you're going to carry with you and so i think conduct is a really good way that we um for some people for the first time are really teaching them how to hold themselves accountable or hold others accountable so i i think that's kind of where my philosophy's at and how i've gotten to this place
0: I really appreciate you framing it from a life skill perspective, because I I often say that in student conduct, what we do is we teach soft skills. Uh, We're teaching Mm -hmm. students how to communicate. We're teaching students how to own their decisions. But it really comes down to that accountability component. And I'd love to recommend a book to our listeners. Um, There's a book called Personal Accountability Matters to All of Us or something to that effect and uh the author is samuel Sheesh, c-i-c-h-e and there's a really interesting infographic in there on the mentality of accountability thinking and uh being the victim uh, meaning kind of owning that identity as it wasn't me i wasn't in the right place at the right time kind of thing versus what role did i play in decision making um so that'd be a great read that i would highly recommend Um, but Christina, you also mentioned earlier that you identify as a first gen college student. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how that identity plays a role in your work, in your philosophy.
1: Yeah. So I was definitely the, you know, just emerging from high school student. I did not want to go to college at all. Um, like vehemently was against it. My mother essentially told me I was going, I didn't have a choice. Um, and so I then was, I was then kind of like toying with the idea of community college and then eventually got accepted into the program at the University of Central Missouri, which is very well known for criminal justice. So I started to really come around to the idea. Um, being a first-generation college student, I think has influenced me heavily as a college student, but it influences me just as much now um i think the way that it really impacts me in my life today is remembering what it was like to not know what was going on um or to not know you know where to find resources or where to find support um and trying to always remind myself of that i think i think a big a big thing for me And the way that being a first-generation college student impacts just who I am as a a professional and just philosophically is that I don't ever really want to forget where I came from. And I think in a lot of ways as we tend to, you know, leave college and or move up in the student affairs field, we tend to forget that. Um, What it was like to once be a college student, you know, what it was like to once not really know where we were headed in life. And so I think that's the biggest way. I also think... The way in which I interact with students, So I was a McNair scholar as well. I'm in the TRIO program. And so that's, uh, of course, geared for first-generation, low-income, and racially or ethnically underrepresented students within the field that you were wanting to study. And so I believe very highly in that program and what trio offers and a lot of the skills that I was taught in order to be successful came through that program and so I think I really attempt to um, provide those opportunities and skills to other students even if they're not first generation right because even if both your parents went to school there's still a lot to learn about the, the college landscape and so I think I I come with that lens at all times when working with students
0: I really appreciate learning that uh, about your philosophy. And do you translate that as well to the FSL side of your job?
1: Um, yeah. So it, it, of course, an interesting dynamic, the Sordian fraternity community, particularly for our majority groups, which is who I inevitably end up working with more often since they're the larger group uh, being like IFC and Panhellenic groups, um, is that they come with a lot more privilege than, uh, I would say the general student population and, or even, um, some of our cultural based organizations simply because of the money, the alumni, the support from their national or international organizations. And so I think I apply all of those same concepts to when I work with them. Um, but I think fortunate for them, they're not always in need of the same support, um, However, a short story, I did have a student the other day who I was talking to a new incoming president of a sorority who was describing uh, another member of their chapters really having some unhealthy relationships with alcohol. And you know, clearly the student was very concerned about the other member and sharing her concerns. And I, you know, kind of stopped her and said, listen, do you know about the resources here on campus that you could connect that student to? And because we just uh, started a, like a student support case management position. And she was very unaware of that Mm -hmm. um, resource. And so I was like, look, if we send you this link, I really think you should try to put in Uh, even if you do it anonymously, a report that will go to our student of concern review team. And I I was amazed and so thankful and happy that when I got back this week, she actually had submitted a report um, for that other student. And so myself and the student support and case management person were actually able to have a conversation about maybe it would be worth you in your role reaching out to fraternity and sorority presidents Just to say, hey, here's this resource. I think there's still some level of the unknown for all students. I just think in my experience with the sorority and fraternity community, particularly for the majority groups, is that um, they're already in tune in a lot of ways.
0: So can you describe just for the listeners real quickly what your role is kind of in that crossover space between conduct and FSL?
1: Absolutely. So my role is... Really, it's broad to all student organizations, but by nature and the culture at KU, um, I do work more specifically with sorority and fraternity life because that is typically the organizations that we see violating policy in a group situation. And so my role is I am still just a general hearing officer as the rest of the folks in my office, but I biweekly uh, with the rest of our team meet with the sorority and fraternity life staff. And we essentially go over, you know, where the community is at, where different chapters are at. Um, I work with rec services a little bit if we have any incidents with um, groups over there. Uh, I We haven't in my time had any uh, incidents with athletics that were a team wide, but we would also work. I would also work with athletics if it was um, an incident concerning the entire team. Mm-hmm. I also have. Uh, recruited and trained our investigation team. So our investigation team is made up of campus partners across campus, and I recruit and train them as well. And then I, of course, do all communication and correspondence with all of the stakeholders from an organization, whether that's the undergraduate students, advisors, headquarters, and those kinds of folks.
0: So you're quite ingrained in both the fraternity, sorority life world and the student conduct world. Uh, so mm-hmm, I think yes. a, an important question to ask is, you know, I think those two communities, and I had this similar conversation with Laura Matthews, don't necessarily uh, see eye to eye or see each other as partners all the time when we really should. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that each of those um, niches of student affairs need to ne- need to know or need to hear about each other? Oh, gosh.
1: It's funny that you asked because i've actually I've had a couple of institutions call in the past couple of weeks just to kind of they have similar roles that I do, and so just to kind of talk about our process, I think I have been of course super fortunate because I've worked in both worlds, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm not the type of person who has any preconceived notions about either, but I think a lot of us right, either get siloed into conduct or work in sorority and fraternity life and have never done the other's job, and so we're not good at understanding where the other is coming from. I think when I think about for sorority and fraternity life folks, um, I think learning the conduct process and kind of understanding why we sometimes do the things we do, why we sometimes um, you know, keep information close to us before we choose to share it. And then I think also just attempting really to engage in the conduct process and understanding, you know, the, the the process in its entirety, but then also how can you as a sorority and fraternity life professional get involved, whether that's reviewing documents, being on phone calls, being in meetings, you know, whatever that may look like. But I think on the flip side, conduct professionals in a, in a big way – have to start being a little more trusting. Mm. (laughs) Um, When I, when I think, I I think about this concept a lot when we talk about headquarters. I often hear conduct professionals talk about, you know, well, the headquarters will, they won't support us or they won't do this or they won't do that. Um, And I just, I think that's a, I think that's a misconception. Um, I think transparency is key on both sides, and I think that we as conduct professionals are lack trust when it comes to um, some sorority and fraternity incidents, but also tend to keep, you know, our cards close to our chest rather than just being transparent. We're always everybody's always going to have some negative situation or scenario that they've encountered, but I think um, you have the ability to have much more positive. Uh, experiences when you're transparent and trusting. And I also think conduct people and sorting and fraternity life folks alike both need to learn each other's lingo and that kind of thing. So you can kind of understand where people are coming from. And so, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I really could talk about that forever. It's uh, it's a concept that I am uh, very ingrained in, but that's kind of some of my general thoughts.
0: Here hear a future conference presentation in your brain there. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well, Christina, I, I, actually, think- I actually, I actually will, I actually
1: will be presenting uh, on uh, like talking about collaborating between student conduct and sorority and fraternity life and headquarters professionals at ASCA this year. So, for folks who are in that field or interested, please feel free to stop by.
0: I love the plug. Um, I appreciate that. So Christina, one of the reasons that I I wanted to have this conversation with you today is, you know, part of our mission here on Viewpoints is to feature voices in the profession that may not otherwise become highlighted in certain spaces. And I think your identity as still somewhat of a new professional, uh, and the things you've been able to do in your career really speak to a lot of people because, you know, you, you were a recommended guest for us. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you have approached navigating your journey into the profession,
1: yeah, so w- we have this conversation, I think, a lot as a board, and it's 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 all about how do we lift people up, how do we elevate voices? um how do we encourage people to lead? Um, and I think honestly, I have been just so fortunate to be connected to people who I have, um, you know, made the network that I built, essentially. Um, Danny Sheehy and Kathleen Shepenko from Penn State were both extremely influential in my journey as I entered, one, the field, of course, but then also just uh, in creating ASC as my professional home. Um, I was, of course, also fortunate enough to have a diversity scholarship my first year that I attended ASCA, and I was a presidential graduate assistant in my second year. And I think Well, how I've navigated it is to literally introduce myself to any and everybody that I can and just trying to be in spaces where um, I can meet new people and, you know, introduce myself and taking on when somebody says, Hey, do you want to do X, Y, Z? As long as I absolutely can commit to it, taking on new opportunities and experiences. And so I think that I've been really, I've been able to, be successful in that way. However, I'm also I'm also I mean, in, in the boardroom I'm also not the type of person who sits around and says yes, and I'm not the type of person who sits around and agrees to agree. Um I absolutely am very opinionated and say, you know, what I what I think needs to be said, um, which I think is I think a lot of times young professionals, we don't always feel comfortable to do that in certain spaces. I feel like the boardroom, at least in this year, has been absolutely welcoming of that. Um, but I do think that in a lot of ways as a young professional, you're worried about how it's going to impact your career in, in the long term, uh, what you say and don't say at this stage.
0: So I think that's a a really important point, you know, that long term impact is a big question mark. And you mentioned that you're trying to enter spaces uh, and just say yes to things. It's one of my personal life philosophies, which is, you know, life tends to be better when you say yes to new experiences. And. Mm-hmm. The reality of that, too, is that uh, when you enter those spaces, that can even feel a little scary, right? The first time you enter mm-hmm. a room full of uh, well-tenured prof- uh, professionals of any kind. So what was your strategy for the first time you set foot in those rooms?
1: So I think for me, it's finding somebody who I do know or who looks like me to be able to connect with first and then essentially tag along. Um I, I also absolutely a plug. Anybody is more than welcome to tag along with me at all times. I just, I feel like that, that's the beauty of ASCA that I haven't seen at other conferences that I've been in. There is some level of let me, you know, help you. Um, let me help get you connected or, Hey, I know this person who could, you know, be a good resource for you or whatever. And so I think that is how I navigated those spaces. But then two, when there wasn't people there that I knew or who looked like me, it's speaking up, right? So if I'm in some kind of presentation, And I don't know anybody there. and Nobody there is really somebody who I feel like I would immediately connect with. You know, as the presenter's talking or asking questions, I raise my hand and I speak up. Um, And then eventually, there are typically opportunities where somebody will say, hey, I really liked what you said. And then you get to connect with that person. Um, And so I think that there are a couple of different strategies. I think for me, I am more of a, a talkative, extrovert kind of person. And so I think... Spaces are made for people who kind of come from that identity. Um, and they're not as much created for spaces for people who are internal processors or, you know, are um, introverts or things of that nature, people who aren't as outgoing potentially. And so I have been super fortunate and privileged in those spaces to be able to do that. And so I think that it's it's that's the answer for me. But I think that's a hard thing for everybody to do.
0: So you mentioned a couple of times that one of your main strategies is to find people that look like you. Uh, Given that we Mm -hmm. are on a podcast, uh, people cannot Mm -hmm. infer observations kind of in the same way. And so would you be willing to share that identity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, folks of color, so I identify as black biracial. um, And I say black and biracial because I you know, personally and internally feel biracial, but I externally present black and I think the world sees me as black. And so I don't ever forget that. Um, I'm pretty femme, I'd say. My hair, um, I think tends to lead people to believe that I'm masculine. Um, but I, I am a woman and I think those are most of the external, I'm able bodied. Those are the most external identities that folks can see that I would quickly you know connect with somebody over.
0: So when you think about those identities um, and how they are extremely intersectional in the way that you present in the world, how people read you, what has been most salient for you um, in making connections in the field.
1: I think I you know I don't, I don't I don't know. I think to some extent being I would say both being a woman and Being Black, Biracial, both have afforded me really great opportunities to connect with other folks who look like me or present as I do. Um, I have found a lot of really just amazing women that I've been able to connect with in the association Especially in, you know, uh, overall student affairs is typically femme domi- dominated, but student conduct student can tend to be masculine dominated. And so to be able to find a lot of really strong women has been an awesome opportunity. And then for to be able to connect with their networks have been great. But to be just quite honest, I think I have uh, r- uh, made friends with a, a lot of white men who have also been able to support me, which I think is by nature, the privilege that a lot of them hold and being able to connect me with other people has been um, a success for me. Um, and I, I, I think that not everybody is able to connect with folks in that way or even feels comfortable. And so I have been fortunate to make relationships with some pr- pretty privileged folk- people to be able to connect me with others as well.
0: I think that's a a component of our journeys that we share. Um, So I've shared with the listeners before, I identify as a transracial Asian American. Uh, So Mm -hmm. what that means is I have an uh, adopted identity. And so while to the Mm -hmm. world, I uh, present phenotypically as straight up Asian American, um, I have a (laughs) white cultural identity. And so it can Mm -hmm. create some interesting barriers to being welcomed in certain spaces. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I think that is a very similar experience for many of my friends who identify as biracial. Uh, But I bring that up to say, I think it means something different for us when we're talking about navigating not only association politics, but institutional politics, and even those Mm one-on-one relationships with our students, because the way that we are read can impact the way that we are heard. Mm -hmm. So have you navigated, uh, for better and for worse, how your identity either creates success for you or barriers?
1: And you mean at the institutional level, right?
0: Kind of all levels and all parts of your journey and the spaces that you occupy.
1: Yeah, so gosh, I think to some extent, and just to be real, like I think my identities I've been tokenized a lot um, in my identities and for better or for worse, sometimes that has set, it has. It has brought me forward, you know, has catapulted me forward to some extent. Um, and I think that's just real because I think that sometimes the way people receive me is different than they receive other people who present like I do. And so I think this I have been tokenized in some spaces for sure, um, which I, I think has been my entire life, but I don't think I started to realize it as much until really grad school and post-grad school. Um, so although that is positive, it's it's tough to to uh, take on sometimes. Um, I think recently, especially in my professional career, I have experienced a lot of, um, people wanting to police how I speak or the things that I say. Mm. And I think that has been, uh, a hard reality to accept and, and to some extent is, Tough because you're not sure if it's because you're a woman or if it's because the color of your skin, and and it's a hard place to to be at times. But I think, gosh, I I wish I could have my mom on this podcast too because you'd realize why I say like I'm just gonna push forward. Like I just (laughs) I was raised by really strong, confident women who um, are, are aren't gonna like let life set them back as much as possible. Um, And so I just keep pushing. I'm just going to keep being me. I I maybe learn. I've probably had to learn a little bit how to craft emails every once in a while. Um, And really, I've, I've had to be mindful about the person who's on the receiving end of what I'm saying or emailing or whatever that may be. And so I think I see it show up a lot in that way. I mean, realistically, external from like professional colleagues. Again, I work primarily with sororities and fraternities and primarily uh, historically white sororities and fraternities. And so I I work with people who don't look like me all the time. Um, And so I constantly am having to show up in spaces and think about, you know, what I'm wearing, how I'm sitting, the words that are coming out of my mouth, the way my face looks. Um, And so not that I do anything differently, but it's all definitely something that I have to be conscious of at all times.
0: And do you think that is rooted in identity or personality?
1: Gosh, the two are so intertwined. Right, so intersectional Um, and so
0: hard to pull them apart. And it's a question I wrestled with too, and I think you posed that interestingly. Um, And I think there is an additional pressure if we're to kind of extrapolate our individual identities just to women. Yeah. um, To Mm women-identified individuals who are tone-policed or uh, even just told to smile more, that kind of thing.
1: Right um, right, absolutely, and i think I think it's both, um I think it's wrapped up in both, but I also think if I had white skin and had the same personality, I did, people would still be offended, right even <laughs> even if I was a woman okay. so to some extent, to some extent, I think it's kind of like, oh wow, she's pretty intense or straightforward, or whatever they don't like to see feminine people act like mm. um but i I definitely think uh it, it adds layers, right, like if I was just a white woman, and I acted like that. I think people would still have something to say because I'm a woman. But then you add this component of also being a biracial black woman, and and it adds new layers. And it also depends on who I'm interacting with, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it's somebody who looks like me, it's like oh, like it it that looks like that looks like me. You know, that's how I present, or that's how I act, or that's how I feel. And so there's there's just this level of like being in a world where you are constantly having to think about stuff that other people just don't ever in their life have to consider. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting.
0: I think that, uh, that sentiment I share with you for sure on the, and I think about it often from a framework of representation matters and representation, Mm -hmm. uh, shows other individuals who look similar, that there is a space for you uh, that mm-hmm. your voice has a, a place, uh, a systemic place, and that you matter. And one of the things um, that I found for my own career anyway is that uh, I get not a small number of younger APIDA-identified mm-hmm. women uh, letting me know that mm-hmm. it means a lot to them to see me in that space. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm i back and forth a lot with uh, wanting to create pathways for others to be a good role model for others, and then also not wanting to be tokenized in my own skin from an Mm in-group perspective.
1: And I think to your point, something that's really interesting about what you just said is this idea, you know, that the PETA identity and trying to find people, you know, to kind of essentially elevate, pull up, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, what is so And you'll you'll understand this in your transracial identity. What is so I think stress stressful for me, or you know, is challenging, is that although I present black to the world, I don't think even folks of color always see me that way, right? Like Mm -hmm. they always potentially are um, seeing my biracial identity more than my black identity. And so, when we talk about representation there are very, I mean, I, I'm not even sure, I think there are very few biracial people that I have met, particularly in, in student conduct, or at least folks who are uh, accepting of that identity or, uh, you know, share that identity, mm-hmm. internally. And so I think that that adds a really strange component, you know, because I, I, we in the field, of course, just talk about representation pretty broadly. And I, my entire life, even today, lack true representation um, because being biracial, I think, is a whole nother ballgame um it's a whole nother experience within itself so yeah
0: and we're seeing that broadcast to the world right now with the uh very public wedding of Meghan markle to prince harry yeah. uh, i was one of the very first biracial women to be uh hoist into the spotlight in that way and the very first person of color in the royal family and so i think that identity um uh, is starting to become more welcomed which is awesome because i think that was um a real challenge that we've had in diversity and inclusion circles for a while. Absolutely. So Christina, I want to spend some time talking about your work with the ASCA board of directors, as Mm -hmm. I mentioned, and we've been so thrilled to have you in the room the last two years. You've done some great work. Uh, When your role of director of membership, what does that mean? Yeah. So director of membership um,
1: is really, I'll tell you the things that I work closest with. So I work closest with um, the membership committee, um, and working on the things that they're doing. And of course, there's three subcommittees, which are the recruitment, retention and international subcommittees. So I work with them uh, pretty frequently on projects that they're working on um, and it kind of help them liaise with the board. You know, if there's things that they need or projects that we maybe are wanting them to look into. And then I would say my biggest group that I really work with is, are the state and regions. And I think that's, that's been a really fun gig as I work with all of our regions, uh, including the Canadian region. Um, And then in addition to that, you know, as they work with their state coordinators. Um, And so that has been a really fun experience and able to just work with the membership in that way. And then just in general, I always get a lot of general emails from members who need things, um, whether it's related to registration or membership or how do I do this? Or how do I join this? Um, And so that's a pretty common piece of my work as well. Um, I work a little bit just in general in collaboration with other board members on different projects and things that they, uh, that have come out of our strategic planning or prioritizing. And then of course, uh, just in the generalist form is, is being on the board, you know, um, having input, um, having opinions, thoughts, concerns about whatever it is we're talking about. Um, and so that, in my opinion, that's what the role looks like. Um, it stays pretty busy with the state and regions, um, you know, and as I, as I support the region chairs as they of course then support their state coordinators and then the general membership. So um, it's been, it has been a very fun time. It's funny to think about being in this role now because when I was a graduate assistant, um, I remember having a one-on-one conversation with Laura Matthews um, in uh, when we were still at St. Pete and just having a conversation with her about her role and what she did and just, I don't even really remember how I got linked up with her. Um, But then to be in this role now after her has been a really cool experience. So yeah,
0: And I'll just give a quick plug. Uh, If you would like to hear from Laura, she was just featured earlier this season in episode 2.5. So I would really encourage you to go back and check it out. She talks a lot about the FEA, Fraternal Executive Association, ASCA Collaboration Guide on Investigating uh, Organizational Misconduct. It's a good listen. So please check that out. Uh, but Christina, mm-hmm. if I'm a brand new ASCA member and maybe I've uh, found this podcast because it's it's a good way to get information and maybe doesn't have to be so interactive uh, but still mm-hmm. helps me stay connected, how would you suggest that I get more involved in the association or where would I start as a new member to uh, go beyond um, attending things and start engaging? Yeah, so many ways. Uh, so my first thought is get on our website check out our
1: committees and our communities of practice, find the contact information for the folks who lead those groups and um, get involved with them. Uh, You can always reach out to me if you're not hearing from people um, and I'm happy to connect folks. In addition to that, getting involved in your state, figuring out who your state coordinator is and connecting with that person to see how you can be supportive of the state and, you know, the region that you potentially reside in. And then I think, In addition to that, if you are able to go to the annual conference, finding ways to volunteer at the conference, whether that's, you know, doing the check-in desk or working with the silent auction or whatever that may be. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to go ahead and get involved in those ways as well. I think those are most of our formal ways of getting involved, but I think also just jumping on the website and finding an email and reaching out to somebody to see how you can, uh, you know, jump in and get involved or help out is also great as well.
0: So if I'm new to the association, I think I understand uh, what a committee is. That's pretty common structure. But what is a community of Mm -hmm. practice?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the difference between, in my opinion, a committee and a community of practice. So a committee is really about a group of people who have come together to do work on an issue. So like with the membership committee, they have a pretty tailored reason why they have come together. It's to focus on the membership. It's to focus on retention, recruitment, and our international members. Um, When I think about a community of practice, specifically let's use the Fraternian Sorority Life Community of Practice, that's really a bunch of folks who have a common interest um, of fraternity and sorority life, whether they work in fraternity and sorority life or whether they do a job like mine or just in general, they might be interested in what that looks like, you know, to have a fraternity and sorority life community of practice within a conduct association. Um, and I, there are some communities of practice who have things that come out as a result of work that they've done. The FEA and the ASCA collaboration being a good example, but then I think there are also some communities of practice who are really there just to support each other, bounce ideas off of each other, ask questions, um, and more so just serve as really a group of folks who have a common interest.
0: And kind of uh, flipping that over a little bit to your board work again, Mm -hmm. what what advice Mm -hmm. would you give prospective board members, folks who are thinking about running for the first time? Uh, individuals who might be, you know, just slightly terrified to put themselves out there like that, how would you help them navigate that process?
1: Yeah, uh, do it, one, (laughs) is is the
0: first step, I think, because, I mean, we've always heard this,
1: but the worst that anything can happen is people say no, Um, and I think putting yourself out there in that way is, allows the association to gain access to who you are as a person, and then also allows you to kind of set yourself up for, you know, if you don't get it this time, maybe you get it next time. Um, and I think to some extent, I think it is important to get involved in some ways prior to joining the boardroom. I think understanding our structure um, and the benefits of being a member of a state and region structure, what are, what are committees, what are communities of practice, and really understanding the association as a whole is really a good place to start. And then I think in general, just familiarizing yourself with where's the association at now and where do we want to be? So as the board continues to work on our strategic priorities, as those roll out um, for this upcoming year, I think that's a great place to start and really understanding. And at any point, grabbing an old board member or a new board member or somebody who's currently sitting and talking with them about their experience and um, what it means to be a board member. Because I, I truly believe that everybody on the board has their own distinct and significant role. And so what it looks like for me is different than what it looks like for somebody else. Um, But at the end of the day, we're all coming together for this common purpose to move the association forward and be the leading voices in the student conduct functional area.
0: You've mentioned a couple of names throughout our conversation today, folks that have helped mentor you or have pushed you um, to drive forward or um, have helped you hone your philosophy. So wanted to give you some space to give any shout outs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I already talked about Danny Sheehy and Kathleen Sopanko. Um, you know, Penn State is where I started my grad work in student conduct. So, my, you know, I love those people and they taught me a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, Tamara King, Bonnie Shade, Akila Jones, Katika uh, Harris, Karen Joshua Wallace. Those have all been prominent um, black women, I think, who have... Uh, paved the way for a lot of us. Uh, Valronica Sales, I think all of those have been great people who have um, shown me that it's possible and who continue to show all of us that it's possible. Um, Omar Stars Torres um, has been a, a great uh, friend to me, family to me, and has continued to support me in my endeavors within the association. Uh, Kathy Cox um, has been a phenomenal mentor and friend, along with Martha. Compton have been great to me, especially in my work in the boardroom. And I think supporting me when sometimes I think I probably talk too much um, and telling me that it's okay and that my opinion is needed. And so um, I I inevitably have probably left several people out, um, but those immediate or the immediate people that come to my mind um, who have been pivotal in the way that I do my work. And then of Of course, my supervisor, Lance Watson, would probably be the last person that I would shout out as he's the person who nominated me for the director of membership role and believed in me when I was like, there's no way in heck that I'm getting that um, role. And so he really believed in me and uh, encouraged me to uh, move forward. And so very excited and more, more, I am so privileged to be able to have the people that I do in my corner and supporting me.
0: I really appreciate you having this dialogue with me today. Uh, It's not very frequent that I get to have these kind of deeper dive discussions with folks who share complex identities and really be honest about that. So uh, I hope that the listeners enjoy kind of hearing two women of color just processing their experiences a little bit. But we always Mm -hmm. like to close the show with asking our guests what you are reading.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently reading The New Jim Crow. Um, I've been reading it for a while. Reading is not my best form of... just really doing things um, <laughs> but i've been reading I've been reading the new jim Crow um and honestly, and doing conduct work and as somebody who's a criminal justice major uh, to learn more about that has just been so cool and so eye opening so um I've really been loving that book and absolutely encourage folks who have not had the opportunity to read it to do so.
0: Do you know the author off the top of your head?
1: Oh gosh. No, I knew you were going to put me on the spot. I should have looked it up.
0: <laughs> no worries. Um, uh, well, the new yeah, Jim Yeah, I was going to
1: say, I'm sure we'll figure it out.
0: It's uh, off the top of my head, uh, not coming to me. Michelle.
1: Maybe. Yeah, Michelle Alexander is her name. I was like, I knew it started with an M. Michelle Alexander. Awesome.
0: Uh, well, yes. Michelle Alexander's book has been out for a while. It is a bit of a heavy read if you haven't checked it out yet. Yes. So just make sure you're in a good um, kind of psychological mental health space um, before mm-hmm. you dive in that mm-hmm. journey. Um, and then finally, Christina, if folks want to reach you after the show today, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So it, any any social media platform that you want to find me on, it's Christina Parle, P is in Paul, A-R-L-E, Everybody thinks it's Parlay, but it is Parl like Carl, but with a P. So, for anybody who knows me and doesn't realize that's my last name, uh, there you go. Um, and then if you want to reach me via email, it's cparl, the number three, at gmail.com.
0: Great. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can tweet us at ASCAPodcast. That's at ASCAPodcast. Or you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Christina, for sharing your viewpoint. Thank
1: you. Next time
0: in 2019 on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we will have a couple of guests lined up and I'm just not quite sure what order we're going to drop them in yet. But we will be featuring Beth Devonshire, who works for D DeSafford and & Associates and also writes the ASCA Law and Policy Report we'll be speaking with Sean Callagher, who is our incoming ASCA president, and we'll be speaking with Katika Harris, our director of diversity and inclusion, and Christine Simone, our conference chair. So a lot of exciting things lined up for 2019. And Again, I'm not sure what order we're going to drop them in just yet, but we look forward to bringing you that content come the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards, and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions, for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at Podcast at gmail.com.